Sure, okay. Um, well, hello, it's a delight to, to be here. Thank you for welcoming a, a southerner all the way up here. Uh, I live and work in Southampton, and I'm born and bred in Portsmouth, so uh, I'm very much a South Coast boy, so it's nice to be up here. Um, I'm a Christian and a philosopher by academic training, and I now spend my life working partly with A-level students around the country, uh, and partly working uh, for a college of journalism, believe it or not, in Norway, and also writing uh, books and doing talks and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so I will draw your attention to two things in particular from uh, the book selection on the bookstall. Uh, one is my uh, previous book, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, which is really a uh, response to the new atheist movement uh, as a whole and there is a, a chapter in here that particularly deals with the whole question of science and uh, Christian faith and the relationship between them um, so let me plug my, my own book and also let me plug a book by a guy called John Lennox who's a philosopher of science from Oxford University and his book uh, God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God now in its second edition is also I think a very good book a very readable book, a very interesting book on the relationship between uh, Christianity and science. Uh, this talk is based on a paper that I published originally in Norwegian, uh, in a Norwegian uh, apologetics journal, but we have some copies uh, in English for you here tonight. Uh, uh, and they're free. So uh, all the bits of uh, paper and the leaflets from the church, they're free, but the books you'll have to um, haggle with someone for them, and I'm sure we could do you a good deal. So let's look at this uh, question of, is Christianity uh, unscientific? And let me uh, lay the table, as it were, with a quotation from one of the new atheists, American Sam Harris. And this is from an article he wrote relatively recently um, discussing uh, the work of a couple of other scientists. One, a guy called James Watson and another a guy called Francis Collins. Now, James Watson is a very famous scientist because he was part of the pairing of Crick and Watson, who were the scientists who worked out the double helical shape of the DNA molecule. So, uh, Watson of Crick and Watson. And Francis Collins is a, a very famous contemporary scientist from the States, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him later. So here's what Sam Harris has to say about James Watson and Francis Collins. Says James Watson, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, a Nobel laureate, and the original head of the Human Genome Project, so a very uh, prestigious guy in that field of science. He recently asserted in an interview that people of African descent appear to be innately less intelligent than white Europeans. A few sentences spoken off the cuff resulted in academic defenestration. Watson's opinions on race are disturbing, says Harris. But his underlying point was not in principle, and I've highlighted this word for you, unscientific. There is at least a possible scientific basis for his views. While Watson's statement was obnoxious, one cannot say that his views are utterly highlighted irrational. 
or that by merely giving voice to them, he has highlighted, repudiated the scientific worldview and declared himself immune to its further discoveries. Such a distinction, not a very distinguished distinction, as you can tell, such a distinction would have to be reserved for Watson's successor at the Human Genome Project, Dr. Francis Collins. Okay, so you get the, you get the idea. Watson gives vent to some racist views, but he's not, in principle, being unscientific or repudiating the scientific worldview by doing that. No, that kind of status of being even worse than being racist applies to Dr. Francis Collins, Watson's successor at the Human Genome Project. Why, you might ask? Well, here's the reason why. It's because Dr. Francis Collins is a Christian. That's why. So you can see the accusation here. Being a Christian means being unscientific, repudiating the scientific worldview, and it's basically worse than being a racist. Well, is Harris right about that? Well, here's why I go into typical philosopher mode, and I say, well, it depends what you mean by, and then spend a little while looking at the definition of some things, so that we are all talking in straight and agreed lines, as it were. Depends what you mean by science, for example. What is science? What is being unscientific? And, of course, what is Christianity? And perhaps when we've hammered some definitions of these things out, it'll become more clear whether or not Harris is correct. So let's begin with what is science. You'll find on your tables there is an outline of the lecture which I give you the main kind of bullet points and the quotations that I use, because I often find people come up to me afterwards and say, oh, could I have this quotation or that quotation? So I think all the important and interesting quotations that I'll be using from various people are on that outline for you, if you want to follow along. But you don't have to. Uh, it just gives you something else to look at other than me. You know. So what is science? Well, it comes from the Latin word scientia, originally, which just meant knowledge, a field of knowledge. Um, everything that you would have studied at university back in the day would have been a science, including theology was a science. They didn't make these distinctions, it was just a field of knowledge. But today we use science in a narrower sense than that old-fashioned use in the Latin. A narrower sense. But there is something called scientism, not science, but scientism, which I think illegitimately, illegitimately ignores the fact that we use science in a narrower sense these days. This is a quote from a chemist from Oxford called Peter Atkins, another one of the new atheists, by the way, from his recently published book On Being. And he says, The scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. That is a classic statement of a scientism, a scientistic position. Stephen Hawking and uh, his co-writer Leonard Mlodnow in their book The Grand Design, which I'll be talking about tomorrow, say similar thing. They say philosophy 
is dead. I am the representative this evening of a dead subject. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. So you get the idea. Science is the only way to know anything. Well, as John Lennox, who I've uh, highlighted his book to you, says, Hawking's statement about philosophy is itself a philosophical statement. It's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement about philosophy, about science, about whether or not it has limits to what it can know and so on. So Lennox says it's manifestly not a statement of science. It's a metaphysical statement about science. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. It literally can't be true. If you say, with Peter Atkins, science is the only way to know anything, the rejoinder, of course, is, can you show me how you know that by the methods of science? To which the only available answer is, oh, whoops. So beware of scientism. That's different from science. Also, I think, beware of something called methodological naturalism. As you'll find out this evening, philosophers tend to like long words instead of short words. But I will translate all the long words into short words for you and let you in on the inside here. Um, So this basically means doing science as if matter was the only stuff that existed. Methodological naturalism. It's not claiming that matter is the only stuff that exists. It's not making that truth claim. It's just saying when you do science, you should behave, you should act as if matter was the only stuff that existed. Uh, Paul de Vries, who was a Christian scholar, in fact, originally distinguished between methodological naturalism, a method, a way of going about stuff, that's supposed to be neutral concerning God's existence and supernatural things. It's not claiming there isn't a God, Well, there is, it's just meant to be neutral. And metaphysical naturalism, which denies the existence of a transcendent God, the position that says, no, matter is, in fact, the only kind of stuff that exists. And so, another expression of the same view here from philosopher Nancy Murphy, she says, science as such as science seeks naturalistic explanations. Anyone who attributes, say, the characteristics of living things to creative intelligence has, by definition, by definition, stepped into the arena of either metaphysics or theology, but you've stepped outside of doing science, by definition. Now, if you kind of build this into your definition of science, it has some very intriguing consequences. Supposing Christianity were to claim that the true explanation of X, whatever that might be, um, the experiences of the disciples on the third day and the fact that they see an empty tomb or the origin of life or whatever. Supposing Christianity claims that the true explanation of X is a miracle. God did it. Okay? But science claims that the explanation of X is entirely naturalistic and material, then they're not contradicting each other. If you build methodological naturalism into your definition of science, why not? Because by definition, science is not concerned with knowing the truth. Now, isn't that an intriguing consequence of defining science in that way? 
And indeed, an increasing number of philosophers of science, whether they believe in God or not, have very bad things to say about methodological naturalism as a definition of science. This is atheist philosopher of science, philosopher of physics, Bradley Monton from America, in his book, Seeking God in Science. And he argues against methodological naturalism. He says, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best series that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. Science is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism, he says, because basically if science is anything, it ought to be a search for what's true. So... I would suggest that science is not, A, to be confused with scientism. Science is a great way to know some things, but it's not the only way to know anything. And B, it's not to be defined as methodologically naturalistic. Otherwise, it's not a search for truth. And at least if you define it in methodologically naturalistic terms, you ought to be on the level and upfront about the fact that you're playing a sort of as-if game rather than searching for the truth. So that's the sort of negative, get some negative stuff out of the way. Here's a more positive characterization of science. And it's a little bit of a long definition, so I'll go over and I'll pick, I'll pick out some highlights for us. But here it is. Science is a first-order discipline involving systematic inquiry into the physical world, the primary aim of which is to know as much as we can about physical reality. And by no, I mean a broad range of stuff. Understand it, explain it, and or predict it. What I mean by saying it's a first order discipline, I mean this. Questions about the nature of science. What we're doing now when we're asking, what is science? Well, we're not doing science now, are we? We're doing philosophy of science. So questions about the nature of science are not questions of science. They're second order questions about science. So here's an instance that proves that scientism is wrong. Because if science is the only way to know anything, then you can't even ask the question, what is science? Secondly, I said that science was concerned with understanding, knowing about physical reality. And I guess here I'm talking about than what we might call the natural sciences rather than uh, some of the softer sciences, as it were. That is, first-order scientific knowledge about physical reality, however much you know about physical reality, that doesn't exclude you knowing through, say, philosophy, stuff about non-physical realities, about spiritual realities. How could any amount of knowledge about physical stuff tell you about non-physical stuff, or whether or not there was non-physical stuff, on its own. So it's focused on the physical. And again, here's some long terms which I shall let you on the inside of. Science is neither epistemologically nor ontologically omnicompetent. Woo! Yeah, it's like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, isn't it? This means... Uh, epistemology is the study of knowledge, how we know stuff. 
And ontology is the study of being, what stuff there is. So how do we know stuff about what there is? So science can't tell you everything about how to know about everything. Okay. So that's the science bit. And you've got to sort of put that on the back burner, keep that boiling at the back there, and let's bring forward Christianity. And then we can kind of compare the two and answer our question. This is a quotation from uh, Dr. Luke's book of Acts, which is a history of the early church. And it's recording the response of a crowd of guys in Jerusalem to the first ever Christian sermon, evangelistic sermon, by the Apostle Peter. So this is not going to tell us the content about, of Christianity, but it's going to tell us something very interesting by just looking at the response of people to hearing about Christianity. So this is Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, what Peter had said about Jesus and so on, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Now notice, first of all, what have they heard? They'd heard Peter declaring a lot of truth claims about who Jesus was and what he'd done and what his significance was. There were beliefs being put forward to be believed or rejected. Secondly, in response to hearing that message, they had an attitudinal reaction in their hearts, as it were. They were cut to the heart because of what they heard. So there's beliefs, and they had a certain attitudinal response to those beliefs. It could have been a very different attitude in response to those beliefs, couldn't it? And finally, that led to them wanting to do something about it. Brothers, what should we do? So in response to hearing the gospel, the Christian message for the first time, the good news, that word simply means, they took on some beliefs, they had an attitude about it that led to them wanting to do something. Now, that structure is a very good definition of a word that often gets banded around in culture today without much definition, and that's spirituality. A spirituality is a way of relating to reality. Through your beliefs about reality, your attitudes towards what you believe about reality, and what you do as a consequence. Spirituality is a way of relating to reality, and different spiritualities fill out different content, different beliefs, different attitudes, different actions, but they all have that same kind of general kind of structure to it because we're all people and we all have more than just heads and more than just hearts and more than just hands now Jesus taught that true spirituality according to him meant for example loving God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength and this is something that's recorded in several different sources in the New Testament And it refers back, Jesus is drawing on some Old Testament passages there as well. All your heart, your attitudes, all of your mind, including your worldview beliefs, all of your strength, i.e. what you do in life. So Christian spirituality means loving God and love self and neighbour as you love God with all of your, well, all of yourself, all of your beliefs, all of your attitudes, all of your actions... And any spirituality as well, you could kind of put into this sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop 
because we believe certain things and we, we have certain attitudes, we tend to live in a certain way. And because we live in a certain way, we tend to continue believing certain things and doing certain things which reinforces our beliefs and so on. Which is why it can, you may have noticed, be very tough sometimes to get people who have one spirituality to abandon it and move to a different one. It can be tough to make an atheist abandon their spirituality. They have a spirituality, it's just a very different one. It can be very tough to get a Christian to abandon their spirituality. And people on both sides are, of course, um, trying to advocate that they think they've got the true spirituality and the other guys have at least got something significant wrong, even though, of course, there are areas of, of overlap. So Jesus taught that the only way to enter into his definition of, his way of cashing out true spirituality, is to trust him, to trust Jesus. In a sense, his teaching was very self-centred. It was all about him and the role he should play in your spirituality. Trust him as the divine point of access to God's love for you, empowering you to love God and self and neighbour. Um, two quotes from two separate independent sources from the New Testament. Uh, I am the gate, said Jesus in an analogy. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the way and the truth and the life, the way to know God, the truth of God, the life of God offered to you. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or from Matthew 7, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls. So he put himself at the centre, at the way of entering into this spirituality of loving God and neighbour. So, we've looked at what is science and a little bit of what it's not. And a little bit of what is Christianity, and as a side benefit, explored the nature of, of spirituality, which different people will cash out in different ways. So now we're in a much better position to answer this question. Is Christianity unscientific? Well, in the modern sense of the term, obviously, for something to be unscientific is merely for it to be something besides a first-order discipline, the primary goal of which is to know as much as we can about physical reality. So yes, Christianity is unscientific. But so is philosophy. So is art. So is jam. And those things are none the worse for that. So we seem to have sort of lost the sense from Sam Harris that this, this saying Christianity is unscientific is meant to be a criticism, isn't it? It's meant to be a, an allegation. It's meant to be something that I'm meant to be, as a Christian, defensive about. And yet, if I'm going to be defensive about that, it seems I have to be very defensive about my breakfast jam as well. So I think what he's really saying, what he really means to say, as it were, is that Christianity is anti-scientific. Well, in response to that accusation, so we need to distinguish between being unscientific and being anti-scientific. Being anti-scientific surely means being in active opposition to some essential element of what science should properly be understood to be. Just think a few side points with me here. Disagreeing with scientific theory X, now I'm sure all of you can probably imagine 
A scientific theory X that lots of Christians disagree with, but I'm not going to mention it here, but I am talking about it tomorrow afternoon. But let's just leave it general for now. Okay. Disagreeing with scientific theory X doesn't make one anti-scientific. I mean, theories can be scientific without being true. And scientists do disagree a lot about what theories are true. Adopting an anti-scientific position of some kind might lead you to reject some scientific theory, X, Y, or Z. But the mere fact that someone rejects a particular scientific theory doesn't prove that they've adopted an anti-scientific position. They might have rejected it for perfectly good scientific reasons. No, rather, being anti-scientific really means being committed to a position, a belief, an attitude, an action, that's really in tension with something that unifies participants in the scientific project when they're having a scientific disagreement with each other. So what's really objectionable about rejecting some scientific theory or other for anti-scientific reasons isn't the rejection of the theory, it's doing it for anti-scientific reasons. It's rather the fact that one is supposed to be flouting some kind of, now again, slightly highfalutin terminology here, epistemic virtue. That means a good way that you ought to think about stuff. That you're not thinking in the right way. As Stuart C. Hackett, philosopher, puts it, science in this narrower sense can't function without employing the universal criteria of knowledge. There's not some sort of special scientific logic separate from logic or being reasonable, as it were. The charge of being scientific, in other words, really boils down to the charge that one is irrational. That's all that's being said. And actually, note in the quote from the beginning how Harris slides in that quote from calling Francis Collins's faith in principle unscientific, and then later on, as if it were a synonym in the article, he says, utterly irrational. That's what he really means. That one is flouting or rejecting some proper good way of thinking about stuff. Now, faced with that charge, you only have a limited number of options. There's only a a limited number of get-out clauses for the Christian here, faced with that kind of accusation. We could try and show that we're not flouting or rejecting a relevant good way of thinking about stuff. We could show that that supposedly good way of thinking about stuff should be limited in some way, or perhaps overridden by a more important good way of thinking about stuff. Or we could show that this supposedly good way of thinking about stuff is actually itself irrational and should be rejected by right-thinking people. Let me give you some concrete illustrations. Um, Occam's razor often comes up in this context. This is William of Occam. Sometimes he's spelt slightly differently because it was pre-standard spelling. Uh, He was a monk in the medieval period. Um, That's probably why he's been using his razor this morning. And you'll often hear uh, Occam's razor used in discussions, usually in this kind of way. Objection, naturalism or materialism is simpler as a view of the world than theism is. After all, if you're a materialist, you only have to believe in one kind of thing. If you're a Christian, you have to believe in at least two different, entirely different categories of stuff, natural and supernatural. That's much more complicated, isn't it? 
But the response to that kind of argument is to note that the virtue of simplicity, and yes, simplicity in your explanation of things, is a virtue. But that virtue is limited and meant to be overridden by the greater virtue of explanatory adequacy. If you've got a simple explanation for some data, that's too simple, that's not adequate to explain the data, all you've got is a simplistic explanation. And it's much better to go with the more complicated but adequate explanation. So here might be an instance where someone's taking what is a a virtue, a good way of thinking about stuff. We should, you know, given a choice between two equally adequate theories that both explain the facts, one of which is simpler than the other, we should indeed pick the simpler one. But given two theories, one simple but inadequate, one more complicated but adequate, you pick the adequate one. So I think Christians can very happily grant the unscientific status of Christianity, as it were, but say, we're not anti-scientific. Indeed, I think the critic is the one who bears the burden of proof, as it were, to show that if you're going to be a Christian, then you necessarily go against some genuinely sensible way of thinking about stuff. Given any objection, because obviously there's all sorts of individual objections in this field that you could look at, but I think you can have a a sort of general idea in mind. Anyone gives you an objection along these lines, think of these two questions. A, does being a Christian require one to reject some supposedly good way of thinking about stuff that's underlying the objection? And secondly... This objection will make some assumption about a good way of thinking about stuff. Is this accusation grounded in a sound, a a properly formulated, a well thought through good way of thinking about stuff or a badly thought through one? And I think the critic has to meet both of those criteria to carry their burden of proof. And of course, since I remain a Christian, my attitude would be I don't think anyone's managed to meet both criteria. So let me again give you some examples. Objection. This is from uh, New Atheist Victor J. Stenger from his book, The New Atheism. He says, faith means having belief in the absence of supportive evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. That's what having religious faith means. Rebuttal. Okay, whilst science surely should repudiate blind faith. The very fact that we can qualify this by saying, well, that's blind faith, should tip you off to the fact that maybe there's a distinction between blind faith and faith. While science surely should repudiate blind faith in the teeth of at least sufficient contrary evidence, well, so does Christianity. Christian faith is not to be defined in that way. Christians believe that they're not believing in the face of overwhelming evidence. Now, they might be wrong about that, but as a matter of definition, that's not what they think they're doing. That's not their intent. But according to Victor Stenger's definition, it is. In other words, this criteria fails to pass our first question. Sam Harris, on the other hand, fails to pass the second question. He says, Christianity means repudiating the scientific worldview. Well, why? Basically, when you think about it, because it means repudiating metaphysical naturalism. 
response. Well, of course, being a Christian entails not being a metaphysical naturalist. Sure. But then a commitment to naturalism is not an essential element of science. I don't even think a commitment to pretending that naturalism is true. Methodological naturalism should be a component of science, let alone the actual belief that naturalism is true. So this fails to meet criteria too. Now, so far, happy houses all getting along. But there are, of course, overlapping interests between science and Christianity. The fact that Christianity is unscientific doesn't mean that it's got nothing to do with science, that the two never come into contact. That is, they live in sort of hermetically sealed compartments of the Titanic or whatever. Uh, the same thing could be said of uh, philosophy, art and jam. Thomas Aquinas, I've already mentioned him, I think he said theology was the queen of the sciences, aided by her handmaiden philosophy. The era that we now call science was called natural philosophy and everything else was... You know, theology was sort of supernatural, as it were. Christianity and science will have overlapping interests in all of these different areas of spirituality. It's not just a sort of intellectual game going on here. Think about the attitudes that you have to have as a person of Christian faith and as a scientist. Both will have an overlapping interest in the value of things like community. Science is a communal activity. And it depends upon people's commitments to that community, their attitudes towards one another, their, uh, their attitudes towards how you should think about things, whether or not to falsify your research to get an, that extra grant money or whatever. You know, A lot of that's a matter of the attitude of the heart. What about actions, ethics? There's obviously a big overlap of interest between Christians and scientists in the field of ethics, in the field of uh, the ethics of research, in the ethics of technology, the application of science, in environmental sciences and so on. And of course, at least at certain points, I would say there's an overlap in beliefs about reality, knowing about empirical reality, does overlap. Christianity is not one of those spiritualities that just gives you a philosophy or an ethical system. It is a spirituality that puts its neck on the empirical block, as it were, and says things like, Jesus really was dead, really was put in a tomb. That tomb really was bodiless on the third day. Various people really did sincerely believe that they'd met him alive again. What's the best explanation of that? The Christian explanation is Jesus really did rise from the dead. It's clearly an adequate explanation. Have you got a simpler and or more adequate one? There's an empirical overlap there. Um, Sciences such as archaeology could certainly, in principle at least, have something relevant to say to that kind of question. As Professor J.P. Morland, a philosopher from, from the States, says, Christianity claims to be a knowledge tradition. A knowledge tradition. I love that terminology. And it places knowledge, not merely truth, at the centre of proclamation and discipleship. That when Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me, he means learn from me stuff that's true and that you can know. The Old and New Testament, says Morland, including the teachings of Jesus, claim not merely that Christianity is true, but that a variety of its moral and religious assertions can be known to be true. 
may be wrong or right about that, but that's what it claims. So faith, according to the New Atheists, as we've seen with Victor Stenger, means things like Dawkins, blind trust, even in the teeth of evidence, Anthony Grayling, a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason. New Atheists simply don't seem to have heard of important biblical verses like 1 Peter 3.15, which says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And as I've pointed out here, the word that's translated into English answer in the Greek, it's the little Greek word apologia. It's the word that was used of your defence lawyer in court, pleading your case, giving an answer back to the accusation. That's where the terminology is drawn from. It means give a good reply, a rational, evidence-based response. This is uh, C.S. Lewis, hero of mine. I'm currently writing a book about him. And he said that faith was the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. The opposition is not between faith and reason, but between faith and the weakness of your attitudes. The fact that you sometimes want to do stuff that would be in conflict with your beliefs and in the moment it can seem very attractive and much more convenient if you didn't have to believe all this stuff and and so on and he actually says this holds for religious people and for non-religious people he says if you don't have faith in this sense you'll never be a sort of psychologically stable atheist or a psychologically stable christian or whatever You might have noticed that 1 Peter 3.15 very neatly stacks into beliefs, attitudes and actions as well. You keep seeing it crop up once you've got it in mind. You can divide it as well as the Bible does into work and faith. And when we do that, we say faith is a matter not just of, of beliefs, but of positive attitude towards belief. It's not just the fact that I say, well, I believe the rope bridge will carry my weight. It's the fact that when push comes to shove, I'll actually walk out on it. But I'll walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Philosophers distinguish between believing that something is true and believing in something, or more often believing in someone. Because Christian spirituality is not just this sort of philosophical system. Jesus said it's meant to be a relationship with a person, with God, with Jesus. And he wants you to trust him, to believe in him not just to believe certain things about him. Indeed, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, the demons believe in the existence of God and Jesus and so on, and tremble, they hate him. And they're like, you could take it, or scared, I'm not quite sure which way to take it, but they have a belief in that, but a very different attitude they didn't believe in, as Christians are meant to. So faith is just simply trust, and everyone, including scientists, even when they're doing science, exercises trust. So one last section, and we're on the home run here, because I just want to say something a bit more positive. I've kind of made 
defensive moves to this accusation that Christianity is unscientific or anti-scientific or irrational, as it actually boils down to. I want to say something a little bit more positive. Um, This is a very interesting theoretical physicist called Paul Davis. He writes uh, very interesting popular uh, works of science in sort of physics and cosmology and stuff. And he's an agnostic. He doesn't believe that there is a God, doesn't believe that there isn't. He's a kind of, "Mm, don't know, maybe, maybe not. And he asks this question, how do we explain science? And it's a bit of a long quote, but it's absolutely fascinating to see an agnostic, respected cosmologist saying this. I'm going to turn here because the writing's far too small even for me to read on my laptop. So here we go. The worldview of a scientist, even the most atheistic scientist, is that essentially of monotheism. It's a belief which is accepted as an article of, and I think he means blind faith here, faith, that the universe is ordered in an intelligible way. Now, you couldn't be a scientist if you didn't believe these two things. If you didn't think there was an underlying order in nature, you wouldn't bother to do it because there's nothing to be found. And if you didn't believe it was intelligible, you'd give up, because there's no point if human beings can't come to understand it. But scientists do, as a matter of faith, accept that the universe is ordered and at least partially intelligible to human beings. And that's what underpins the entire scientific enterprise. And this is a theological position. It's absolutely clear, when you look at history, it comes from that theological worldview. It is very, very significant that in historical terms, that that is where it comes from, and that scientists unshakably today retain that worldview as an act of faith. And scientists just take this for granted for the most part, but I think it's a really important point that needs to be made. Absolutely fascinating, isn't it? I think there are various philosophical assumptions that you have to make in order to do science. Philosophical presuppositions of science that, because these are second-order assumptions, cannot be justified by science as a first-order discipline. And I also think that you take a bunch of these philosophical assumptions undergirding science, you'll see that a theistic worldview justifies, gives you a reason for accepting these as more than an act of blind faith. Gives you a reason for thinking that these are true. Things like the natural world exhibits a rational order. That the human mind is at least to some degree able to understand that order. That human cognitive and sensory faculties are, generally speaking, reliable. That the rational order displayed in the natural world can't be simply deduced from first principles like the ancient Greeks thought that you need to do observation and experiment to find out what the world is like. You can't just sit in your armchair and go, I like circles, planets must go in circles, like Aristotle did. That there are knowable, objective values of truth and goodness and even beauty. It's very significant sometimes in cosmology and more mathematical fields of science. That the natural world is not divine, that pantheism is false when you're experimenting on the frog, you're not chopping God up. Uh, It's not impious to experiment upon the natural world and treat it as a thing. 
because it is a thing and not a person. That the natural world isn't governed by multiple competing or just capricious chaotic forces. Now, if you believe that there's a God, the monotheistic type of God, that would give you a reason to believe all of these things. This is Steve Fuller, sociologist of science, and this is from his book, Descent Over Descent, very punny title, Descent Over Descent. (laughs) He says, while I cannot honestly say that I believe in a divine personal creator... No plausible alternative has yet been offered to justify the pursuit of science as a search for the ultimate systematic understanding of reality. Atheism as a positive doctrine has done precious little for science. Science makes sense only if there is an overall design to nature that we are especially well equipped to fathom. Even though most of it has little bearing on our day-to-day animal survival... Humanity's creation in the image of God provides the clearest historical rationale for the rather specialised expenditure of effort associated with science. Let me finish with a rather charming medieval picture of Adam and Eve in the garden with God. Think of it like this. If you believe in a personal, rational agent with free will who created the material universe and who created humanity in his image being the things in creation most like God that we know in the material realm you would expect humans not only to be able to understand something of God not to comprehend him but to understand something of him you might also very well expect those beings made in God's image to be able to fathom something of the world out there Because the underlying rational order in the world out there and the way we're designed to think about things in here both come from the same consistent, rational, good source. And so you expect expect these two things to be able to fit together. So is Christianity unscientific? Yes, in that Christianity is not science. But that's trivial. No in that Christianity is not anti-scientific. I don't think anyone has has ever met the criteria for establishing that. No, in that science can't tell you how to know everything or everything that's to be known. No, in that Christianity is itself a knowledge tradition in that wider sense of science. No, in that Christianity, historically speaking, actually helped give birth to science as we understand it in the modern world. And no in that theism, at least, the theistic component of Christianity, provides you with philosophical warrant or justification for doing science as more than a matter of blind faith. So almost kind of ironically and a little bit provocatively, I could end by saying it's not Christianity that's anti-scientific by being a matter of blind faith. It's doing science without believing in God that's anti-scientific because it's a matter of blind faith. (laughs) Thank you very much.
we're just going to go for a quick uh, coffee break. Uh, during the break, if you've got any questions, just use the uh, paper and pen on your desk. Uh, the questions you want. Uh, I'm just and then we I won't. Uh, let me just pause this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, shall I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As I said to Joshua earlier, I feel like I ought to have some sort of glove puppet if I'm going to sit on, or a guitar or something. But I, but I don't. Um, thank you for paying attention to the talk. I, I waffled on for about ten minutes more than I meant to, so I apologise for that. And of course, the first question I got during the question time, someone came up to me and tried to pin me down on theory X, of course. So I had to give him an honest answer about that. Um, but I have much more um, things to say about that uh, tomorrow afternoon as well. So I'm um, give a plug to what's going on tomorrow. And in the service here tomorrow morning, I'm talking about uh, Stephen Hawking's book, The Grand Design, and responding to that. And so um, that's pre-advertising done. We've got a bunch of fascinating questions yeah, ready. Thank you for your questions. Um, sort, of, sort of put these into categories, so I'll just start off with... Um some uh, philosophy of science one. So, hmm. first one, um, methodological naturalism has done a good job of uncovering the world and its processes. What is a viable scientific alternative which does not limit itself to a, com- a compartmented view of reality? Hmm. So, yeah, basically... Yes. Well, okay, I think... Methodological naturalism, this assumption that any explanation you give in science has to be compatible with a materialistic worldview. Um, In a lot of instances, of course, it does no harm to science because the genuine true explanation that you're seeking does actually happen to be a material one. It would only be in any instance where the true explanation was not a fully materialistic one, where that rule would lead you astray and would lead you to believe something that wasn't true. Um, But the general principle that since science should be a search for truth, that you shouldn't sort of define it by a rule that means that it's not a search for truth. Um, I kind of agree with Montan on that one. But setting aside that kind of approach doesn't mean that you then end up with a kind of free-for-all where what you do as a scientist is you look at something and go, that's interesting, ah, God did it! You know, uh, you can instead, uh, you can continue following lots of very sensible rules about how to come to the best explanation of things, like Occam's razor. You can, for example, I think it's a very good rule to say, since material explanations are simple ones, um, they, they just invoke that one thing, uh, and we know that it does explain a lot in its, in its own terms, that perhaps it's very sensible to look initially for a material explanation before resorting to a supernatural explanation for something, and that when you do so, you should only do on principled grounds, that you've got some good reason to invoke, say, design to explain something in the universe. Uh, And there's a whole very fruitful discussion going on at the moment about various criteria and rules and ways in which you can have a principled way of deciding when you do and when you don't um, resort to design. But what, one, just one last point on this, because I think this, I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, but I've actually ad- advocated what I call soft methodological naturalism as uh, opposed to um, what, I, what I call hard methodological naturalism. Hard methodological naturalism is the rule that says um, 
don't uh, appeal to intelligence in explaining anything in the natural world. Okay? Uh, Well, if you followed that rule, lots of current scientific projects would be out of the window. Forensic science would be dead. Because you could never say, oh, it wasn't an accident, he was murdered. Um, The search for extraterrestrials would be out of the window as not scientific and so on. So it seems to me that you, you have to allow in explanations framed in terms of intelligence. And we already have lots of sciences that do that and, and work perfectly well and don't end up as a, a free-for-all. They have ways of rules of when you should appeal to intelligence and when not. Um, but you could still follow a rule that says, don't explicitly mention anything that's supernatural in explaining science. Because we can leave to one side the entire debate about whether or not intelligence is a supernatural thing. I mean, I'm a mind-body dualist in the philosophy of mind. I think that my mind is not just my brain. Okay? But if there are two forensic scientists in the lab, one of whom believes in souls and one of whom doesn't, do they have to resolve that dispute about the nature of intelligence, metaphysically speaking, before they can decide whether or not it was a murder? Okay. No, it seems to me they can agree that there is something we call intelligence and we'll leave the question of what is the nature of that intelligence to the philosophers to argue about. But if you can follow that rule there, then why not when it comes to things like the origin of life or the fine-tuning of the universe? Okay, cool. Hmm. Um, I think another philosopher says that. As we are moving into a postmodern worldview, is the quest for scientific rationalism losing its relevance? Hmm. Uh, well, yes, are we? As well, there's a, yes, as you say, there's a sort of assumption under the question, which is that we are moving into a postmodern worldview. Um, this terminology might need explaining uh, as well. People often divide up various kind of ways of looking at reality uh, into uh, modernism. Postmodernism and pre-modernism. So modernism would be uh, the kind of very scientific view of things. Science is the way to know everything, and it's going to solve all our problems. And bada bing, bada boom. Postmodernism tends to you could kind of caricature it as the view that says, "Hey, different strokes for different folks. There's no such thing as absolute truth." Um, everything's relative, everything's influenced by your cultural background and we can't ever rise above those kind of uh, influences on us and be objective and actually really know stuff. We know that we don't know anything. You can see the problem there. And then there's a, actually a pre-modern worldview which would include things like the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is not modernistic, nor is it postmodernistic. It's pre-modernistic. And... Um, so, the biblical worldview doesn't like modernism because it, seems it sees it as too narrow and reductionistic and so on, and would agree with postmodernists that modernism is too narrow in its rationality, too reductionistic, and so on. But would also disagree with postmodernists, would agree with modernists against postmodernists that there is such a thing as truth and that it is knowable and that we can rise above our biases at least some of the time, and so on. Um, so um, all of them kind of say a pox on two different houses. They're disagreeing both to the left and the right all of the time. So there'd be certain agreements and certain disagreements with, with both groups there. 
Um, the question of are we actually moving into a postmodern age or not, um, I'm not quite so sure that we are. Um, a classic movement within modernism from the early 20th century was the view that you can only know stuff that's true by definition or that you can kind of touch, see, hear, sense, smell, at least in principle. It was a rule about how you know stuff that didn't meet its own standard, so it was soon given up. Um, but one, rule, one thing that the philosophers who advocated this rule, called the verification principle, ended up saying was that basically they wanted to say science is, is fine, but metaphysics or morals or aesthetics or theology, that's all meaningless. It's not even false. It just doesn't mean anything because you can't say it's true by definition. You can't see God, touch God, smell God, lick God, you know, so it's meaningless. Um, and thus, in those areas, there was no knowledge. There's no knowledge of moral, there's no moral knowledge of what's good no knowledge of what's beautiful, no knowledge about God, I, you're only left with personal preference. Different strokes for different folks, it's all relative. And so actually you could say that the central movement of modernism, this idea that science is the kind of only way to really know anything, is itself the flip side of postmodernism. People tend to be postmodernistic about morality and aesthetics and art and theology... But when they get a headache, they go for the scientifically proven pot of pills. <laughs> when they get on the aeroplane, they want to know that the engineer had a bona fide degree. <laughs> and that's because they think there's knowledge to be had about aeronautics, but they don't think there's knowledge to be had about theology or morality and so on. And that comes from central tradition of the modernist movement. So, Thank you. Hmm. Um, I've got two questions here about Richard Dawkins, mm. surprisingly. Um, they're pretty much the same, so I'll read out this one. Okay. Um, how does an atheist such as Dawkins substantiate his belief that there is no God when he has no evidence? And in the other words, do you think Dawkins is irrational in his beliefs? This sort of thing. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, let's take the second one for, first. Um, I think that Dawkins is inconsistent in his beliefs. He contradicts himself in lots of different ways. Um, and if that's something that you could call being irrational, then I would say Dawkins is irrational in his beliefs. Because he does things like, on the one hand, say very clearly that the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect to see if there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, i.e. no God. No good, no evil, nothing but pitiless indifference. No good, no evil, nothing but pitiless indifference. Okay? On the other hand, he said things like, religious people do evil things! <laughs> Faith means not living up to your intellectual obligations to be reasonable. You're not being reasonable. religious people. Be reasonable. You really ought to not buy into the evils of faith. So how do you kind of square that circle? He wants to take with one hand and give with the other uh, when it suits him. And he does that in various different ways with various different things. So I do, I do think that um, he is fairly uh, irrational in his atheism, which is not to say that all atheists are like that. 
This is specifically about Richard Dawkins. There's a broad range of atheists, some of whom are just as kind of annoyed about the Richard Dawkins brand of atheism uh, as, as I am. So, you know. Um, in terms of how does he justify his belief in God, what was the question? How does he justify it since he has no evidence? Yeah. 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 Well, he does seem to take mainly the track that he kind of is kind of doing that appeal to Occam's razor and is kind of saying, since there's no good evidence for God, and since it's simpler not to believe in a God than to believe, what we ought to do is not believe. So he says, I don't think I can prove that there's no God, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that there's no God. And you could t- take that as a kind of psychological certainty, maybe more than an epistemological certainty. Um, but his basic argument is really... Um, there used to be decent reasons for believing in God, particularly the apparent design of the world. Then Charles Darwin came along and completely undermined that intuition by showing a, a simpler alternative explanation, evolution by natural selection. Okay. And that undermined any good reason for believing in God, Bring in Occam's razor so you shouldn't believe. Now, of course, when you ask Richard Dawkins how does he know that evolution can indeed explain everything about the natural world that seemed to indicate design to us before we knew about Charles Darwin, he says, well, you can know that that's true from your armchair without appealing to any evidence because the only alternative explanation of the apparent design of the universe would be that there's a God. And that's not reasonable. And we know it's not reasonable to believe in God because we've got this simpler, alternative, better explanation of the apparent design of the universe. Evolution can do it all. And how do we know that evolution can do it all? Because the only alternative would be to appeal to God. And he argues in this great big circle. Um, so that seems pretty rational to me as well. Yeah. Great. Uh, got a scientific one here. Uh, about the Big Bang. Mm. Uh, do you believe in the Big Bang theory? And if yes, how can we as Christians relate it to the Bible? Marvellous. You need to come to my talk tomorrow afternoon. Um, <laughs> but a quick response on this. Yes, I do believe in the Big Bang theory. Um, it actually supports the central claim uh, that Christians would make about creation, what I would call the doctrine of creation. And I'll be talking about that in tomorrow morning's Sunday service. I think there's a good argument to be had from the fact that the physical universe had a beginning to the conclusion that it must have had a beginner. Um, big bangs need big bangers, as someone um, pithily boiled it down to. But if you want a, uh, if you want a slightly more worked-out argument for that uh, Sunday morning service, uh, we'll, we'll give it to you. We'll come talk to me afterwards, so I don't bore everyone else. But, um, yeah, I think it supports the idea that there's a creator, at least. Um, I've got one sort of about the concept of God that the sort of new atheists have in their heads. So mm. all of these atheists, scientists and agnostics, etc., talk about God, but what do they mean by that, and what do they think? We've got a quite a uh, leprechauns at the bottom of the garden that they've never seen, heard, or smelt type of God. Do they ask the question of what Christians say? Trinitarian, Jesus, the image of invisible God, Jesus, mm. someone who's been physically seen by revealing Trinitarian God. Yeah, yeah. Well, that kind of links a little bit back to this stuff about the verification principle that we're saying, the idea that you can only know, know stuff that you can, at least in principle, test out kind of empirically. And the people who put forward this rule, like A.J. Eyre in a very famous book of his called uh, Language, Logic and God, um, thought that that meant that science was okay, but theology was, was meaningless. 
And apart from the fact that the rule didn't meet its own standards, which was a pretty big problem with it, um, a philosopher called John Hick very early on responded by saying, actually, in the Christian instance, since Christianity is a religion that does make these historical claims, both historical claims about the past and, indeed, historical claims about what will happen in the future... That Christianity, of all the religions, is one that is open to empirical verification. So Christianity, by the standards of verificationism, was in fact meaningful. So it, the, the principle didn't really do the job that the that AJA wanted it, wanted it to do. And Christianity does, as I say, put its empirical neck on the block over things like the, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus... And eventually, in terms of things like, you know, well, will there be a second coming and a new heavens and a new earth? And John Hicks said, supposing, you know, supposing you die and then you find yourself at the pearly gates next to St. Peter in a resurrection body. And, you know, wouldn't that prove to you that Christianity was true? Um, So it was at least in principle open to verification and therefore meaningful. Yeah. I think that's the last one I've got. Ah, marvellous. Okay. Did I I cover the stuff at the beginning here, though? Uh, Yeah, Trinity and things. Um, Richard Dawkins talks very briefly about Trinity. Basically, he he quotes a theologian talking about the Trinity, says, I don't understand what he's saying because I'm a zoologist and I haven't got an education in the language of philosophical theology. Since I don't understand what this quote is saying, it must be meaningless drivel. Um, because you know, I'm a clever guy and I'd understand stuff if it, if it were meaningful therefore it must be all a load of baloney and that's genuinely how he basically argues about it yeah, yeah. I think that's it unless you've got anything else to well, okay no I have nothing to add I won't detain you any longer unless you want me to uh, I'm very happy for you to come and talk uh, with me one on one and I'll have turned off my podcast recording equipment so uh, no fears on that, that score thank you very much thank you, thank you.